Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be honored with a White House state dinner tonight in an effort to shore up relations with the U.S. It's Thursday, June 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the clock is ticking to find the missing submersible in the North Atlantic. Rescuers are focused on underwater noises heard Tuesday and yesterday. I can't tell you what the noises are, but what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. Also, new ethics concerns involving Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Plus, experts weigh in on whether America's gun violence problem should be labeled an epidemic. And this hour, the trial begins today for Brazil's former far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro. In sports, Red Sox lose, partly sunny, around 70 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Fire officials in Texas say a fourth person has been killed by a tornado that crashed through the town of Matador last evening. It's north of Lubbock. Ten people have been injured. Another tornado in the same region last week killed three people. There's no sign of a missing submersible in the North Atlantic Ocean. Five people descended underwater last Sunday to see the wreck of the Titanic. They haven't been heard from since. The Coast Guard says more vessels are joining the search. Katie Croft Bell heads the Ocean Discovery League. She's explained why it's taking time for ships to arrive at the search area. Research vessels, which is what I've, um, you know, most familiar with, can only travel at about 12 to 14 miles an hour. So if you were to try to get a research vessel, say from Boston, it would take three days to get there. The timing is critical. The submersible only had enough oxygen to last until today. A California man convicted in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has been sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. Daniel Joseph Rodriguez attacked Washington, D.C. police officer Michael Fanone with a stun gun. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has more. Court documents show that in the fall of 2020, Rodriguez helped start a pro-Trump telegram chat. And prosecutors say that during the Capitol riot, Rodriguez attacked several police officers, broke windows, and stole items. They assert he tased Officer Fanon, who suffered injuries in a mild heart attack. Rodriguez later took to Telegram to share details of the riot. U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson ordered Rodriguez to serve an additional 36 months of supervised release and to pay thousands of dollars in restitution to the architect of the Capitol and to Fanon. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Texas senators have unveiled the rules for the impeachment trial of suspended state attorney General Ken Paxton. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports at least one key rule will make it more difficult to convict him. Ken Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, holds her husband's former Senate seat and has said she'll be participating in the trial. The Senate rules will bar her from casting a vote, but they will allow her to count for purposes of a quorum. Charles Rocky Rhodes teaches constitutional law at South Texas College of Law, Houston. The practical effect is that Senator Paxton is wielding a no vote without having to vote no. The Texas Constitution requires that two-thirds of those senators present vote to convict in order to permanently remove the defendant from office. Attorney General Paxton is currently suspended from office pending the outcome of the trial. The trial will begin September 5th. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. President Biden welcomes Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House today for a meeting. He'll later host a formal state dinner. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Authorities in Taunton are investigating racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic graffiti found at a synagogue. Rabbi Coleman Reboy leads the targeted synagogue, the Congregation Agadoth Ahim of Greater Taunton. We will not bow to hate. Uh, we will not be uh, victims. You know, after that uh, swastika was discovered, we didn't fall apart. Our congregation was strong. Reboy says security cameras captured the vandalism on tape. Similar graffiti was found at a private residence nearby. The police chief in Taunton says his department will aggressively investigate the vandalism. He adds no resident should be made to feel unsafe because of their religion. The Healy administration is hoping to update the state's curriculum for health and physical education courses in schools. The proposal would put a focus on LGBTQ inclusivity, medical accuracy, and age-appropriate guidelines. Governor Healy hopes the update could help all students thrive as schools move beyond the impacts of the pandemic. Our young people have experienced a real surge in uh, documented uh, mental health conditions. And we owe it to them to empower them with resources, with knowledge, with the tools they need to be successful. This would be the first update to the state's existing comprehensive health curriculum framework since 1999. The State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education will take up the proposal next week. The average cost for a two-bedroom apartment in the city of Worcester is up 10 percent in the last year. A report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition finds the average rent is up to nearly $1,500 a month. That means someone has to earn more than $65,000 a year to be able to afford a two-bedroom. The report ranks Massachusetts as the third least affordable state in the country for renters. Amesbury will postpone its 4th of July fireworks. That's after endangered birds called bobolinks were found nesting where the fireworks were supposed to be set off. Wildlife officials say there's not enough space to hold the celebration and keep the birds safe. The Independence Day celebration has been pushed back to Labor Day weekend. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now. More at PEM.org. The Red Sox six-game winning streak ended last night in Minneapolis. They lost to the Twins 5-4 to four in 10 innings. The teams will play again this afternoon. The Celtics have traded Marcus Smart in a three-team deal. Several reports say he'll head to Memphis. In exchange, the Seas will get Kristaps Porzingis from Washington. Boston also gets the 25th overall pick in tonight's NBA draft. Early fog will give way to partly sunny skies. There could be some showers on the south coast and Cape. It'll be around 70 today. Cloudy overnight with a chance for showers before sunrise in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with the possibility of afternoon thunderstorms near 80. Cloudy with a chance for storms Saturday and in the 80s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moon focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Debbie Elliott in Orange Beach, Alabama. 
And I'm May Martinez in Culver City, California. More ships are racing out into the North Atlantic where a submersible with five people aboard went missing after beginning a dive to the wreck of the Titanic. Surveillance planes have been reporting some underwater noises, but officials say they don't know if they're from the sub. CBC reporter Ryan Cook is covering the search from St. John's in Newfoundland, Canada. Ryan, uh, many of these rescuers are, are settling right off from St. John's. That's where you are. Can you describe the scene of this port that, that's also really the point of departure for the sub? Yeah, it's been it's been incredible. It's been so hectic. Um, I, I was saying earlier to our colleagues in Dublin, we've seen our fair share of nautical disasters here in St. John's and off the coast of Newfoundland, but we've never seen a response quite like this. There's been a steady drum of American aircraft landing at the airport here and transport trucks carrying piece of equipment after piece of equipment after piece of equipment down to the harbour front. And then, as you mentioned, the boats are setting off from here and heading out to the Titanic site, which is about uh, about 800 kilometers southeast of here. So it is a long ways out into the ocean, and it's taking a considerable amount of time to get that equipment out there. But this morning, we're reporting that two new ROVs have been deployed at the scene. Uh, these are highly specialized vehicles with the ability to dive all the way down to the to the ocean floor at a depth of about 6,000 meters. Um, so they should have no problem getting down to the Titanic wreck site and exploring around in hopes that they can find this thing because the clock is ticking. And is that a new vessel that's joined this search? Is that uh, something that hasn't been used before? Yes, so that would be the uh, the Horizon Horizon Arctic, which is an offshore supply vessel here, uh, dedicated to our our offshore offshore oil industry. What other kind of vessels have been used so far? So we've seen uh, several Canadian Coast Guard vessels, uh, several Air National Guard planes, uh, Canadian Air Force planes. Um, we've seen a number of commercial supply vessels that have been called into action. Uh, there's a French one that just arrived this morning also carrying an ROV. So it's really been an all-hands-on-deck approach. Anyone who was nearby at the time was called into action and are committed to remaining there until they're no longer needed. Ryan, we've been uh, on this story since Monday, um, and each day the air gets lower and lower as far as how much people think is left in the sub. Um, How much oxygen could be left there? It could be gone. It could be gone. Um, Based on the estimates that were given to us on Tuesday by the American Coast Guard, uh, it would have expired about 10 minutes ago. Um, so it's the situation is dire. Now, we were speaking with, uh, with a hyperbaric medicine expert this morning who, who had said, that's really just the best estimate. It could be shorter. It could be longer. And one of the striking things that he had said was if the crew went into hypothermia, it could actually be helping them right now. You've got to think the water down there is so cold, it's near the freezing point. So they would be fighting hypothermia. But he had said if they actually go into hypothermia, that helps protect the brain, the lungs, and the heart and reduce the amount of oxygen used. So he has hope that even if they go past that point, the crew still could be found alive. That's CBC reporter Ryan Cook in St. John's, Newfoundland. Ryan, thanks. Thank you. Republicans in Washington are investigating the investigators. That's why they summoned John Durham to Capitol Hill yesterday. He's the special counsel who determined that the FBI should not have opened a full investigation into possible ties between Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. What is required is accountability. 
both in terms of the standards to which our law enforcement personnel hold themselves and in the consequences they face for violation of laws and policies of relevance. For decades, conservatives were aligned with the FBI, but no more. Republicans are now attacking the Bureau and using Durham's report to do it. Let's bring in Yale University historian Beverly Gage. She wrote a book about the FBI called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Good morning. Good morning. So, Professor Gage, exactly how much has the Republican attitude changed toward the FBI? It's been a really dramatic shift. If you go back to the 1960s, 1970s, sort of the end of J. Edgar Hoover's reign at the FBI, Democrats, liberals, leftists are much more critical of the Bureau. Republicans and conservatives really like the Bureau, and that lasted well into the 21st century. It's in the Trump era that that's changed and changed quite quickly and dramatically. So politics aside, what about the Bureau's responsibility here? Did the agency make any specific decisions or mistakes that warrant concerns about its independence? I think there are lots of legitimate questions that can be asked about the FBI, right? Questions about its surveillance practices, questions about political bias and the Russia probe, you know, over the long term questions about uh, its forensic work, right? And all of those have been asked in the public square and many of them are quite legitimate. I think the problem right now is that they're being driven by partisan politics and therefore, you know, it's really hard to trust uh, kind of the nature of the inquiry. So what is the risk if the FBI loses the trust, let's say, of either party or even of the American people? J. Edgar Hoover, when he was FBI director for 48 years, did a lot of things wrong. But I think one thing he did understand was that the FBI's legitimacy really depended on its nonpartisan reputation. Uh, it's supposed to be the place that we can all turn when you need the facts and an institution that can conduct really politically sensitive investigations with a lot of, of public legitimacy, the people that we can trust. Uh, to tell us what really happened. And so I think this is a moment of real danger for the Bureau. Um, it's clear that on uh, both sides, but particularly among Republicans and conservatives on the right, uh, there are real questions about, about whether to trust the Bureau at the moment and whether those are legitimate or not. Uh, they really matter for, for the FBI's ability to do its work. So let's talk, given your long view of the FBI's history here, how does the agency weather this? How do they recover the confidence of conservatives? Well, I think a lot of it is going to be what it seems Christopher Wray is trying to do, which is uh, to keep his head down, uh, kind of do the work, proceed as best you can, um, take the, the criticisms that are legitimate, make reforms on that front, um, and, and kind of hope that the politics change. But again, not to point to J. Edgar Hoover as the mm. as, as the great oracle uh, by any means, but I do think he also understood uh, the power mm. of kind of public relations and the need for the Bureau itself uh, to narrate what it's doing. Uh, because if you don't narrate what you're doing, other people are going to do it for you. Hoover okay. took it too far, but I think it's an important insight. That's Yale historian Beverly Gage. Thanks so much. 
Thanks. Residents in East Palestine, Ohio, could finally get some answers about the disaster that upended their town in February. The National Transportation Safety Board today begins hearings to investigate just what caused the fiery train derailment, as well as the decision a few days later to vent and burn hazardous chemicals from the wreckage. Some residents are still displaced as the cleanup continues. Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front attended a meeting held by the NTSB last night at East Palestine. High School. Julie, who was there? What did people have to say? This was a meeting for the community. I counted about 70 or 80 people in the auditorium seats. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamandy said at the investigative hearings, their goal will be to figure out what happened and why so they can issue safety recommendations. Hamadi told residents they cannot testify at the hearings because those are meant to get specific questions answered. Since the incident, there have been many public meetings, and some people have been frustrated with environmental regulators, local and state leaders. But at this meeting, many seem genuinely thankful to the NTSB, like Lori Harmon, who remembered seeing Jennifer Hamdi speak shortly after the derailment. Everything that was being showed on TV, Facebook, whatever, it was not sincere. The day that I watched you on TV, I actually felt like there's actually an entity that is with us, with us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does does everybody understand what I'm saying? Finally, I feel like one entity out of all of them was you. And what you said that day touched me very deeply. So Julie, what will the NTSB be looking at during these hearings? Well, these will build off a preliminary report to the agency released in February. That report found that as the train approached East Palestine, the temperature on one wheel bearing got as high as 250 degrees Fahrenheit above the outdoor temperature. The rising temperature had been detected earlier on the route by a series of Norfolk Southern's hot bearing detectors, but investigators found that by the time the last detector picked up on that extreme heat, it was too late to stop the derailment. So the hearings this week will look at hot box systems, train wheel bearings, the preparation of emergency responders, and at that decision to vent and burn chemicals in the tank cars. And among those testifying will be affected federal agencies, unions, Norfolk Southern, and two other companies involved in the incident. All right, now coming back to the people of East Palestine, is there anything that the NTSB can, can do for them? Yeah, that was the biggest question for some people. Someone asked if the hearings would be an exercise in futility. Hamadi said the agency will issue safety recommendations and then it would be up to the Department of Transportation to make new rules and especially Congress to mandate changes in railroad safety standards. That's Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front. Julie, thanks for the information. Well, you're welcome. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Justice Samuel Alito is fighting back against reporting by ProPublica that he failed to disclose a luxury trip he took with the billionaire who had cases come before the Supreme Court. It's 719. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? 
Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional local, long-distance office and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. A mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 70, cloudy and a low around 60 tonight with a chance of showers before dawn tomorrow. Then Friday starts with patchy fog followed by mostly cloudy skies that may give way to showers. We'll have a high near 75. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Debbie Elliott. Paul Janeway is the frontman for the Alabama-based band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. He always dreamed of becoming a preacher, but instead became a soulful singer-songwriter. But he doesn't do love songs, so it was quite a departure when he wrote this one. There ain't what scares me It's missing all that love that you give me Most of my life Proving to the world I'm worth your time Lonely Love Song is on the band's new album. He wrote the music when he found out he was about to become a father during the pandemic. It was his first love song. It's taken a while. You know, it, I didn't grow up with the most <laughs> loving and caring. and It was a pretty toxic environment as far as as my family life went. And when something bad would happen between my mom and dad, my mom would play piano. And that was how I grew up from my relationship with music. So my my idea of writing a love song was always, it just didn't seem natural because my connection of it was always retreat, letting go of your demons in a way. So it was hard for me to write happy stuff just because of my relationship with music. And so that's why getting to write Lonely Love Song felt special. Let's listen a little bit to the title song, Angels in Science Fiction. I don't know if God is real But then I see him in your eyes I don't think I hear his voice Then I hear a little cry You wrote this for your daughter, uh, Marigold. She's now three years old. 
What do you want her to understand about your own relationship with God? Oh, that's a that's a heavy one. I don't really know. I think I want her to obviously find peace. You know, when I was young, I was brought up in church and just kind of just instilled with into me. And then as I grew older and you know disagreed with a lot of the things the church believed, I grew a lot of venom. It's just funny, I think about this all the time, how different she's going to grow up than me <laughs> because I haven't been particularly religious. And But you go through those things, you have those things where you're like, okay, am I going to bring her? Am I going to start going to church and take her? Or, you know, you want her to be instilled in morals. But I think ultimately, if it is something that brings her peace, then I hope she finds whatever that is for her. The song Sea Star resonates for me on this album. I live on the Alabama Gulf Coast, so let's listen a little bit to this. I am a starfish washed upon the shore Stuck in the sun's moon Just waiting to die You are the strong tide Pulling me back into sea You are the strong tide pulling me back into sea. Now I can't wait to live again. It sounds like you found new meaning now in being a father. Uh, has that been surprising to you? No. You know, I think anytime those kinds of things happen, everything has a little more weight to it. And that in particular, that line comes from a story that a preacher told one time where there's a bunch of starfish on the shore and a guy was throwing one at a time there's thousands of them. The guy walks up to him and goes, why are you doing that? Like, you're not going to get all these starfish off the shore. And he picks one up and throws it and says, well, I made a difference for that one. Picked another one up and said, I made a difference for that one. Sometimes our problems in the world seem so, like you can't fix it. You can't do anything. And you just got to help the people that are by you and near you and make a difference, try to make a difference for one person at a time. I am a starfish, washed upon the shore, stuck in the sun's moon, just waiting to die. For me, I am a starfish in that situation, and she is the one who has kind of brought a new life a new meaning. Throwing you back in the water. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you about recording in Memphis. You're a soul singer. You are in Memphis. What was that like? Did that influence the sound of the record? I think so. We recorded in Sam Phillips Studios in Memphis. We are pretty sure that a ghost opened a door during the session. Whoa. A door slammed that should not have been slamming. That place is haunted. I'm telling y'all. But with good people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit spooky in a way. Like, And so you kind of feel like there's some sort of presence there and, and, and you're kind of going through that and maybe it reveals something within you. And I think for me, because it was during 2020, we also kept the bodies limited in the room. And so I think what helped with that is that it gave it that sparseness. It felt very intimate. Because there's one song, the opening song, Chelsea, on the record, is actually our drummer, Kevin, on piano. And me and him had to look at each other for the timing. There was a moment in that song where we 
you know, you take kind of your last breath of the song, and we both have tears running down our eyes, looking at each other, kind of like, wow, that's, you, you just, it was very intimate. Stars And you had a few moments like that throughout the record because it was just you and someone else, which is a really, really interesting experience. Paul Janeway is the lead singer of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Their new record is called Angels in Science Fiction. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Brazil's far-right former President Jair Bolsonaro goes on trial today. He's facing charges that he spread false information about the country's election system. It's 7.29. Follow the news every day with the WBUR app. You can listen live anywhere. It also lets you pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. And Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's blooming courtyard, gardenmuseum.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The search continues in the Atlantic for a missing submersible on a trip to view the wreckage of the Titanic. Officials say the crew is likely running out of oxygen. But National Geographic editor Kristen Romey says there are ways to make it last. What the crew, if they are still present with us, what they are doing to conserve that air. There was a famous sub-rescue in 1973 with a Pisces III where the crew members were rescued after nearly 80 hours. And you have to be very conscious about how you consume your air and what you do in the submersible um, to reduce the amount of oxygen that you are consuming. The National Transportation Safety Board is holding hearings in East Palestine, Ohio, where a train carrying hazardous materials derailed in February. Reporter Julie Grant spoke with some of the residents who attended a community meeting last night. Since the incident, there have been many public meetings, and some people have been frustrated with environmental regulators, local and state leaders. But at this meeting, many seem genuinely thankful to the NTSB. A tornado swept through the town of Matador in northern Texas last night. Officials now say at least four people were killed and 10 others were injured. Damage was described as extensive. Hundreds of homes and businesses lost power. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thousands of people on Cape Cod could be required to upgrade or replace their septic systems. New regulations outlined yesterday by Governor Healy are meant to reverse nitrogen pollution on the Cape. The plan gives communities two years to opt in to a permitting process to come up with other solutions. Healy says financial aid will be available to support required changes. Simmons University is considering major cuts to its liberal arts programs. The cuts would be a result of the school's financial issues caused by declining enrollment. University officials tell the Boston Globe no decisions will be final until October. They say students in affected programs will be able to finish their studies. The Boston Art and Music Soul Festival is back for its fifth year at Franklin Park, and this year it's gotten bigger. WBUR's Ariel Gray reports the festival has expanded from one day to three. BAMS Fest is expecting 15,000 people this year. Jazz drummer Terry Lynn Carrington and legendary DJ Grandmaster Flash will take the stage, along with 15 other performances. Founder Catherine Morris says it's important that the festival continues to center Black culture. Doing a a multidisciplinary, intergenerational festival that feeds people, gives them nourishment, it starts to change the attitude about what's possible and hopefully inspires the next generation that they can go bigger than Vance Festival, as they should. The festival kicks off with a conference today and continues Friday and Saturday with vendors, street art, and dance. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioheat.com. The Red Sox fell to the Twins 5-4 in 10 innings last night in Minneapolis. The teams will wrap up their four-game series this afternoon. In your forecast, we have some patchy fog this morning in the south coast in Cape Macy, some showers. Otherwise, mostly sunny today with a high around 70. Tonight, it drops into the 50s and grows cloudy. There may be showers before sunrise tomorrow. Then a mostly cloudy Friday near 80 with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Debbie Elliott in Orange Beach, Alabama. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. When we talk about gun violence in America, we often use terms like epidemic. So what's the actual definition of that word? An epidemic is a rapid spread of disease to many at-risk individuals in a given population within a relatively short period of time. That's Daniel Webster, a health policy expert at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. I asked him about that idea of framing gun violence as an illness using terms like epidemic. 
Well, that's the classic thing from a public health textbook. But we have long been thinking about gun violence as a public health problem that has many analogies to the conditions that we deal with in public health, including infectious diseases. And and what are those analogies? Well, of course, it has impact on the kind of indicators that we think about in public health. It affects mortality risk, injury risk, mental health, but also importantly, aside from those most basic and measurable kind of things, it is similar to other public health problems in that rates of gun violence are greatly impacted by how healthy conditions are in the places that people live and in the behaviors that they engage in. So some of the same strategies and approaches that we think about in public health to reduce substance abuse, cardiovascular disease, and many other kind of conditions, we apply similar types of methodology and thinking to curtail the problem of gun violence. If epidemic is maybe too narrow of a word for gun violence, would it qualify then as a public health emergency? Almost definitely as a public health emergency. And again, just to be clear, I would consider gun violence also an epidemic. It is a leading cause of death for large segments of the population, including young people. This has been the case for subgroups of, for example, young adult individuals who are black, for example, has long been a leading cause of death. And it also has enormous impacts beyond fatalities that really affect mental health and well-being, even for those who are not directly shot. What's an achievable goal for a public health intervention in gun violence? So, I'll start with gun policy, and and the policy that we have found to have the largest impact across many forms of gun violence is purchaser licensing requirements for those who purchase firearms. We have found significant reductions, roughly around 30%, in firearm homicides and suicides. We've also seen large decreases in fatal mass shootings associated with firearm purchaser licensing. And we've even seen lower levels of gun violence involving law enforcement officers, both as victims being shot in the line of duty or shooting civilians in the line of duty. So simply, this is a policy that decreases the availability of guns in risky situations and with risky individuals. It has high public support and it affects multiple forms of gun violence. So that I think is very achievable. Another kind of approach that I've studied is referred to as community violence intervention programs, intervention that involves individuals who have credibility on the streets, engaging with the highest risk individuals, promoting nonviolent alternatives to responding to conflicts and provocations. We've seen in some communities, you know, reductions of 40% or more. I have other examples, but the main thing I want to underscore is that there are actually many solutions out there that we have not used sufficiently and would make a tremendous impact on mortality rates and general well-being and, and even, frankly, the economic conditions 
of communities. And I have enormous respect and optimism about youth in our country. Uh, Youth are fed up with the conditions that they are living in and the high rates of gun violence that they experience. I believe they will help lead us to better solutions that will lead to lower rates of gun violence. Daniel W. Webster is an American health policy researcher and a distinguished scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Daniel, thanks. Thank you. Democrats in the Senate say they'll take action to tighten ethics rules for U.S. Supreme Court justices. This comes amid new questions about the conduct of Justice Samuel Alito. Unlike his colleague Clarence Thomas, Alito is fighting back. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. First word of the story broke Tuesday night when Alito launched a preventive attack against ProPublica, an investigative nonprofit that hours later would publish allegations of misconduct against the justice. According to the ProPublica report, in 2008, Alito went on a high-end, all-expense-paid fishing trip to Alaska with hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer, a big Republican donor who has repeatedly had cases before the Supreme Court. The justice traveled to the remote Alaska site on Singer's private jet, along with Leonard Leo, a longtime leader of the conservative Federalist Society who helped organize the trip. And the lodge where they all stayed was owned by another Republican donor who footed the bill for Alito's lodging. The ethics issues raised in the ProPublica piece are twofold. First, that Alito did not disclose the private jet trip paid for by Singer. And second, that Singer's hedge fund had appealed to the Supreme Court ten times, raising questions about whether Alito should have recused himself from participating in those cases. Alito, in his pre-buttal on the Wall Street Journal's conservative editorial page, said that no reasonable person viewing all the relevant facts would have thought that he had any conflict of interest. Alito said he only knew Singer casually and that Singer's name appeared nowhere in court papers. ProPublica, however, noted that Singer is the founder, president, and co-CEO of the hedge fund in these cases, and that Singer's name was repeatedly linked to the hedge fund in stories about the litigation. Alito never directly addressed his failure to report the free private jet trip on his financial disclosure form. University of Virginia legal ethics professor Amanda Frost says the law is unambiguous. He was supposed to declare the trip, and he didn't. The statute itself is clear, and the justices can be very harsh on litigants who fail to follow statutory language. So I think they should hold themselves to that same standard. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBOR. Coming up at 810, President Biden hopes to shore up relations at a state dinner for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi tonight, despite Democratic backsliding during Modi's tenure. A mostly sunny day today, near 70. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight, and it grows cloudy overnight with showers possible. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 80, with a chance of showers mainly in the afternoon. It's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
Asian-owned businesses in Massachusetts have shown a lot of growth in the last two decades. That's according to a new report from the Boston Foundation. Data show that between 2002 and 2020, collective payroll at Asian-owned businesses roughly tripled to nearly $4 billion. But the report says many Asian-owned businesses are especially vulnerable to rising costs and loss of business since the pandemic. QJ Schur is president of the Asian Business Empowerment Council at the Boston Foundation. There are challenges in terms of access to services, for example. You know, we see that only 12 percent of Asian-owned businesses reported that they have received any type of assistance um, in the last 12 months. Schur says the survey is the first of its kind in more than a decade. A new bill could require Massachusetts restaurants to follow updated allergy training requirements. Restaurants would need to have at least one employee who has completed the training on duty whenever food is served. Lawmakers behind the bill say more than 710,000 people in the state have severe food allergies. It's 744. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition. From NPR News, I'm Debbie Elliott. And I'm A. Martinez. Brazil's former president, Zaire Bolsonaro, goes on trial today. The populist ex-leader is accused of abusing his power and spreading false information about the elections there. As NPR's Kerry Khan reports, a conviction could sideline his political career and deal a big blow to Brazil's far-right movement. Former President Jair Bolsonaro is being tried in the country's electoral court system, not a criminal court. The seven justices are looking into allegations that while he was president, he abused his power. Specifically, they're reviewing this speech he gave last July to ambassadors he had summoned to his residence. He said he wanted to talk about Brazil's electoral system. I repeat, what I want most is that this election is clean and transparent, Bolsonaro told the crowd. For nearly 50 minutes, he then rehashed his disdain for Brazil's electronic voting system, which he claimed is vulnerable and prone to fraud. Prosecutors say Bolsonaro spread misstatements and attempted to undermine the upcoming vote. His lawyers say the case is weak, especially since the president's audience, foreign nationals, can't even vote in Brazil. Calls to Bolsonaro's lawyer in the case were not returned. Não é um caso sério. Ele fez 
But defense lawyer Karina Kufa, who has represented Bolsonaro in other cases, says the former president was refuting positive reviews of the electronic voting machines by officials. He was just giving his opinion, she says, which is not a crime. She says the court is overreaching by stripping politicians of their rights, which she claims is a tactic used against other officials that's harming Brazil's democracy. Current President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva hasn't commented directly on today's case, but doesn't usually shy from criticizing Bolsonaro, who he beat by a slim margin in last year's election. Before leaving for a state visit to Europe this week, Lula said everyone will have a chance to defend themselves and can go back to living in peace if they've done nothing wrong. Malu Gaspar, a columnist with a global newspaper, says Bolsonaro has a long legal road ahead of him, including civil and criminal investigations. In the electoral court alone, he has 15 other cases pending. This is not the strongest case, but it's the first one that goes to trial. And she says while Bolsonaro isn't looking at jail time in today's case, if found guilty, he could be barred from office for eight years. However, she doesn't think that means he'll be out of politics completely. I think he's very strong. He's kind of a symbol in the right, especially in the far right. And she says he is a big draw for supporters. Like his political ally in the U.S., former President Donald Trump, Bolsonaro continues to hold rallies even while defending himself in legal proceedings. But unlike Trump, Bolsonaro can't run for office if he's convicted. Political scientist Guillermo Casarroya says eight years is a long time to be out of power. It's going to be even harder for him to sustain his position and to keep his supporting base together. And given Brazil's fractious multi-political party system, Casaroya says there are plenty of other politicians in the wings ready to fill the role of leader of Brazil's right. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Debbie Elliott. You're with WBOR. Coming up at 820, the missing submersible carrying tourists to the site of the Titanic has raised questions about extreme tourism and who pays for the rescue when things go wrong. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. The PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf announcing they will merge into one golf league. That major merger has roiled the sports world and the geopolitical one, too. Sports diplomacy isn't new. Countries use athletics to burnish their reputations all the time. But could the Saudi golf deal be better described as sports washing? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Rescue efforts are ongoing after at least four people were killed during a tornado just north of Lubbock, Texas. There's still no sign of the missing submersible with five passengers that went missing during an expedition to the Titanic wreck site. 
And President Joe Biden will host Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a meeting and state dinner at the White House tonight. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone, explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org. Clearing skies make way for some sun today and we'll have temperatures near 70, 50s tonight. Clouds move back in overnight and may give way to showers before dawn tomorrow morning. Then a cloudy Friday near 80 with rain possible mostly in the afternoon. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Debbie Elliott. When children were jailed during civil rights protests in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, a local black businessman posted their bail. He also provided a safe space for leaders to strategize. And yet the late A.G. Gaston is not as well known as other civil rights activists. Now, 60 years later, the city and the National Park Service are trying to change that. And we should note there's a racial slur in this story. Construction workers are putting the final touches in the courtyard of the newly restored A.G. Gaston Motel in downtown Birmingham, sealing the parking lot. This site is the newest addition to the Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument, designated by President Obama in 2017 to preserve key landmarks of the Birmingham movement. Standing in the courtyard is like stepping back in time, rooms facing inward with bright orange doors and turquoise balcony rails. Park Ranger Catherine Gardner points to the second floor room where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. stayed and rallied protesters from the balcony from that very spot. So it's just really incredible, all the history that unfolded here. That room that she referred to, it was room 30. It was the war room, that's what it was called. That's Denise Gilmore, director of racial equity for the city. She calls this a place of collective memory. It was famous even before the Birmingham movement. It opened with 32 air-conditioned rooms. Think about that in 1954, for black people to be able to have that kind of comfort as they travel. Yeah, wall-to-wall carpet. It was touted as a luxury hotel, and there were very famous guests who stayed here, such as Aretha Franklin. The city and the Park Service have teamed up to save not only this historic structure, which had been sitting idle since the 1980s, but also to honor the legacy of A.G. Gaston. He died in 1996 at 103. Arthur George Gaston was a prolific entrepreneur. The hotel was one of more than a dozen businesses he started in order to give Birmingham's black community the goods and services that were not available to them from white establishments. It all started with a burial club. An offshoot of that business is still in operation today as the Smith and Gaston Funeral Home. A nephew, Paul Gardner, is the director. The funeral home was the basis of his empire. He also owned a business college, a nursing home, cemeteries, a bank, and radio stations. And a pharmacy, a bottling company, and a construction firm. Garner has fond memories going to his uncle's house to swim in the backyard pool. He says looking back, it's remarkable what Gaston achieved given the hostile climate in the segregated South. 
A.G. Gaston was born in a log cabin in Demopolis, Alabama, and moved to Birmingham when his mother got a job as a cook for a white family. Dirt poor, dirt poor, nothing. He had really had no shot at anything. With less than a high school education, the grandson of a slave, and he did it anyway. That's Creola Gaston Lucas. A.G. Gaston was her grandfather. Lucas is at her niece Rochelle Malone's house, leafing through scrapbooks. I guess we're the keeper of records. <laughs> so I have various random things about him, different articles. This is from 1960, Ebony Magazine, and it has the A.G. Gaston story. There's a letter from President Nixon praising his business acumen, a picture of Gaston with the boxer Muhammad Ali, and his Army discharge papers. He served during World War I. Lucas says these papers reflect his national status, a status not acknowledged by the white powers that be in Birmingham. My grandfather was a spokesperson for the Negro community, and he would have a meeting with Bull Connor, police commissioner of Birmingham. My grandfather said as he entered his office, Bull Connor said, ha, come on in here, nigga Gaston. And so I told my grandfather, my goodness, what did you do? She figured she would have told off the notorious segregationist Bull Connor, but her grandfather explained otherwise. He said, you have to know when you don't need to say anything, because I knew who I was. When he left the Army, Gaston worked in Birmingham's industrial mills and sold plate lunches to his co-workers as a side gig to earn money. That's what seeded his future businesses. He had rules, and he followed those, and he was very disciplined. He believed in the mantra of finding a need and filling that need, and there was so much needed for African-Americans because of segregation. For example, Lucas says his bank, Citizens Federal Savings and Loan, meant access to capital for the black community. Once he got that bank started, Negroes were able to borrow money, to build homes, to educate their children, and to travel, and to start their own businesses. That opened up a whole new world. The family is pushing to have a Birmingham street named for him. Rochelle Malone sees her great-grandfather as revolutionary. He truly is an icon. I call him a civil rights icon. Gaston, however, was controversial in his day because of the middle ground he tried to stake out, while leaders like MLK and the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth were the public faces of the movement, Gaston used his wealth and influence behind the scenes. Malone says that true rebuke. He was providing for the African-American community, but he also had a rapport with the white community. He capitalized on that to put in place the things that he needed to put in place for his people. Now, he was not always liked for that. He was looked to be an Uncle Tom. Back at the A.G. Gaston Motel, there's a new exhibit about the man. In an archive video, he explains his position. I was with the movement, but I just couldn't see myself getting out there uh, provoking somebody to hit me, you know? Birmingham's Denise Gilmore says even though he wasn't in the streets, his support sustained the movement. Gaston bailed out so many people. I think he spent over $160,000 bailing people out. He bailed Dr. King out numerous times. 
Now, she says, the motel can serve as a reminder of A.G. Gaston's legacy and what was achieved here in forcing the nation to recognize the human rights of black Americans. This is Morning Edition. From NPR News, I'm Debbie Elliott. And I'm A. Martinez. Skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day today, near 70. Tonight it falls to the 50s and clouds move in. We may see showers before sunrise tomorrow. Then an overcast Friday with a chance of showers mostly in the afternoon. It'll be near 80. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescuers are racing to find a missing submersible in the North Atlantic as the vehicle is expected to run out of oxygen today. It's Thursday, June 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden hosts a state dinner for India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi today in an effort to cement relations and counter China in the Indo-Pacific. Also this hour. Not in my wildest dreams, I had imagined that I would be the one impacted. So right now I need to get a job as soon as possible. Laid off tech workers on H-1B visas are scrambling to find ways to stay in the U.S. Plus, the Boston Art and Music Soul Festival returns this week with a goal to be more than just entertainment. Doing a a multidisciplinary, intergenerational festival that feeds people, gives them nourishment, it starts to change the attitude about what's possible. Partly sunny around 70 today, it's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Fire officials in northern Texas say four people have been killed after a tornado burst into the town of Matador last evening. It's north of Lubbock. Another 10 have been injured, and substantial damage is reported. Another tornado in the region late last week killed three people and injured about 100 others. This is the fifth day of searching for a missing submersible in the North Atlantic Ocean. Five people are aboard. From member station WBUR, Walter Wuthman has more. Rescue crews continued their search through the night, but still haven't found the missing submersible. They're using remote-operated vehicles to try to locate the origin of underwater banging sounds that were picked up earlier in the week. Coast Guard officials say they haven't determined the source of those noises and that they're not necessarily proof of life. Meanwhile, the submersible's estimated oxygen reserves are running out. On board the vessel are a British adventurer, a French Titanic expert, two Pakistani family members, and the American pilot. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. The House of Representatives has voted on party lines to censure California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. He's the former head of the House Intelligence Committee. Republicans want to punish him over his investigations into then-President Donald Trump. Schiff says with the censure vote, Republican House members have told him that he has been effective in the defense of American democracy. 
To my Republican colleagues who introduced this resolution, I thank you. You honor me with your enmity. You flatter me with this falsehood. The resolution claims Schiff misled Americans about the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia. Other probes have not found conclusive evidence that Trump colluded with Russia to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. A Massachusetts Air National Guardsman has pleaded not guilty to six federal charges of sharing top-secret Pentagon documents online. Jack Teixeira remains jailed in Massachusetts. No trial date has yet been set. The National Transportation Safety Board opened investigative hearings with a community meeting last night in East Palestine, Ohio. Officials are investigating the toxic train derailment last February. From IdeaStream Public Media, Abigail Botar has this report. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homedy took questions from residents while explaining how the board is investigating the train derailment and controlled burn of toxic chemicals. The NTSB's goal is to prevent a tragedy from reoccurring, and we issue those safety recommendations that, that we believe would do that, and then we fight vigorously to get those implemented. The NTSB is holding public investigative hearings Thursday and Friday in East Palestine. Topics include emergency responder preparedness, hazard communications, and rail tank car safety. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Botar. It's NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston School Committee member Lorena Lopera is stepping down. She is leaving her post to join the local education nonprofit Edvestors. Lopera served on the committee for two years. Her term was set to expire at the end of the year, but she'll be leaving by next week. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering new rules for title insurance. Those are plans that home buyers are required to purchase to protect mortgage lenders. More now from WBUR's Beth Healy. Title insurance costs homebuyers thousands of dollars, and it's unregulated in Massachusetts. Peter Ott is a homeowner and an insurance actuary. This week, he told the legislature's Committee on Financial Services the state needs to do more to protect consumers who are forced to buy these policies. Title insurance should be subject to the same scrutiny as any other mandatory product, such as auto insurance. Ott testified on behalf of legislation filed by State Representative Antonio Cabral. That measure would create a commission to study title insurance and whether to have the insurance commissioner regulate it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. Curry College is getting a new president. Jay Gonzalez will take over the position at the end of next month. He was the Democratic nominee for governor in 2018. He also served in the administration of former Governor Deval Patrick. Gonzalez will be the first Hispanic leader of the school. The trustees' mobile farmer's market will begin making bi-monthly stops in Chelsea today. It's designed to make fresh, locally grown produce more accessible. Anna Burry-Carmer oversees the market for the city of Chelsea. She says the produce sold qualifies for the state's Healthy Incentives Program, which gives families using an EBT card up to $80 back for buying locally grown produce. All SNAP recipients have access to that benefit. The trustees' mobile market will be the first place in Chelsea for families to be able to take advantage of that benefit. The mobile market will stop at Chelsea's City Hall Plaza every other Thursday between 10 and noon. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
and Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. The Red Sox fell to the Twins 5-4 to four in 10 innings last night in Minneapolis. The teams will play again this afternoon. The longest-tenured Boston Celtic is leaving. Multiple reports say the team is trading Marcus Smart to Memphis in a three-team deal. As part of the trade, the Seas will get center Kristaps Porzingis from Washington. The Seas will also get the 25th overall pick in tonight's NBA draft. Partly sunny and around 70 today. Cloudy overnight with a chance for showers before sunrise in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with the possibility of afternoon thunderstorms near 80. Cloudy with a chance for storms Saturday and in the 80s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Debbie Elliott in Orange Beach, Alabama. President Biden is rolling out the red carpet for India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, a state visit complete with a black tie dinner in Washington tonight. It's a sign the White House views India as an indispensable partner in its effort to counter China's rise. But the warm welcome is drawing some criticism. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So first, why now? Why is the U.S. courting India so heavily? Well, India has the largest population of any country on the planet at this point. And in Modi, it also has a leader who really wants to see India as a global power. Uh, I will also say, though, that it is no secret that this White House sees China as the single biggest foreign policy threat. A senior administration official told me that while the relationship between India and the U.S. is very broad, China is an undeniable factor. You know, the two countries border each other. Mm-hmm. And I will say this view is not limited to the White House. House. Modi will also be addressing a joint meeting of Congress today. I spoke with Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He's a ranking member on the House committee that's focusing on China threats. That relationship with India is incredibly important in stabilizing the security situation and enabling us to basically lower the possibility of conflict. So if India and the U.S. have common interests around national security, they are not on the same page about everything. There has been some criticism. What is that about? Well, Biden came into office also talking about how his foreign policy was really going to center human rights and democracy. And India makes that conversation tricky. The reports coming out of India on a regular basis are quite concerning. Irfan Nuruddin is a professor at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and he points out that while India is indeed the world's largest democracy with vibrant elections, a large part of what makes a liberal democracy function is currently being undermined in India under Modi. Accusations of backsliding, religious bigotry, attacks on the press, attacks on civil society, make this a particularly awkward moment in which to celebrate the two democratic countries coming together to contest China. For example, earlier this year, Indian tax authorities raided local BBC offices after the network aired a documentary that was critical of Modi's role in the riots in the Indian state of Gujarat, where over a thousand people died, mostly Muslims. 
the government outright banned the documentary. You know, earlier I mentioned this senior Biden official I spoke with. Well, they acknowledged, you know, yes, human rights and religious freedom in India are worrying, and they do discuss these issues, but it's delicate. The official told me Indians feel uncomfortable if they think the Americans are lecturing them in public. But some do think the White House could be more vocal about its values, even as it seeks to work with India to counter China. Ben Rhodes worked on national security in the Obama administration. I've been in the room with Prime Minister Modi over the years, and it's clear to me that you know, he has his own deep concerns about China. They've had border conflicts with China. And for that reason, Rhodes thinks the White House could be more outspoken without the worry of losing India's collaboration on China. Because I don't think it's entirely transactional. I think that Modi's doing this for what he perceives as India's interests in having a block of countries that can counter China. Another point of contention between the U.S. and India is the war in Ukraine. Modi has refused to condemn Russia. Lisa Curtis spent years working on South Asia policy in the U.S. government. The Biden administration has been willing to set aside their differences over Russia because they really are playing a long game with India. You know, 10 years ago, Biden was in Mumbai. He was vice president at the time, and he spoke about the U.S.-India relationship as being the defining partnership in the coming century. Many experts agree that China is the accelerant in this relationship, but this is a critical moment to cement ties that are going to be vital for the next, say, 50 years. India is going to have influence in this region. It's inevitable with its growing economy, its huge population, and it's very important for the United States to remain closely engaged, even if there you know, are, are bumps in the road. So engagement even with bumps in the road. Uh, Ozma, the question is, do we expect anything concrete to come out of this week's visit? Biden and Modi are announcing a plan to build fighter jet engines in India. And, you know, this is just one of a long list of announcements. There's also efforts to deepen cooperation on issues ranging from visas to cancer research to space exploration. NPR's White House correspondent, Asma Khalid. Thank you. Thank you. The search for a missing submersible in the North Atlantic is intensifying as the oxygen supply is believed to be almost gone. Surveillance planes have picked up underwater sounds, but there's no confirmation they were made by the Titan or its crew. The fate of the five people on board of the vessel remains unknown. And this incident raises questions for the adventure tourism industry, such as who pays the price when high-risk travel goes wrong. NPR's Brian Mann joins us. Brian, let's start with an update first. I mean, what's uh, happening out there right now? Well, as you mentioned, time's running out on the oxygen supply aboard that sub. A growing fleet of ships and aircraft are racing to the area to join the search and to be ready for recovery efforts if it is located. Uh, Here's Captain Jamie Frederick with the U.S. Coast Guard. There are a lot of pieces of equipment flowing in from St. John's right now. Some of the ROV capability that's arriving soon is really great. An ROV is a remote-operated vehicle that's just part of the arsenal of equipment arriving now on scene. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard is running point for this thing. Um, vessels from other countries and private ships are also involved. Who pays for all that? Yeah, this is going to be hugely expensive, and it will be largely paid for by U.S. taxpayers, even though this tour left from Canada and took place in international waters. It's the policy of the Coast Guard. They don't charge people or companies for search and rescues. OceanGate, the company that operated this tour, required passengers to sign liability waivers, and now the company's uh, unlikely to get a bill for this operation. 
What about regulation, Brian, for high-risk tourism? I mean, do government agencies in the U.S. or maybe uh, around the world have safety requirements for a company such as OceanGate? Well, again, the, the Titan was giving tours in international waters, so there was apparently almost no government oversight here. In some parts of the world, A, companies that sell guide services or adventure trips do have to be licensed, but it's really uneven. Uh, Alan Grenier, an expert on adventure travel at the University of Quebec, says efforts to regulate this part of the industry have largely failed. If you regulate, you're going to kill the sense of adventure. So no regulation was brought. And so for people paying to make these trips with a guide or an adventure travel company, it's it's largely buyer beware. You know, when I look at these trips, adventure travel trips, they just seem sometimes very dangerous. So how common do their customers wind up needing help or rescue? Yeah, this kind of travel is a fast-growing part of the of the industry. More companies are promising to take people to dangerous places, you know, outer space on rockets to the top of mountains to see the wreck of the Titanic. And sometimes things go wrong. This year alone, 17 climbers have died on Mount Everest on guided trips. More people there needed rescue. Experts tell me there are also a lot more people doing adventure travel alone in risky places, and often they don't have the experience or the equipment to do it safely. I spoke about this with Scott Van Lair, who was a forest ranger in New York's Adirondack Mountains, where he took part in more than 600 backcountry rescues. Most of them are so thankful to receive help. But I got to tell you, we had people that we rescued multiple times for the same lack of preparedness or equipment. So not everybody does get the message. And one other thing experts tell me is that uh, rescuers taking part in these missions often suffer injuries and even sometimes fatalities. That's another hidden cost of the adventure travel industry. This search for the Titan is taking place in a very remote area of the Atlantic. So far, fortunately, there have been no reports of injuries among those rescue crews. That's NPR's Brian Mann. Brian, thanks. Thank you. The number of Americans who have to travel 200 miles or more to reach an abortion provider has jumped in the past year. That's since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and 14 states banned abortion. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin talked about the growing distances with an economics professor who's mapped abortion providers throughout the country. You heard that right, an economics professor. I came to it as a labor economist interested in gender differentials in labor market outcomes. That is the professor, Caitlin Myers of Middlebury College in Vermont. You cannot study gender differences in labor market outcomes without studying the effects of family formation and childbearing on women's careers. And you can't study that without getting into reproductive policy, she says. A few years ago, Myers wanted to see how the opening and closing of abortion facilities affected how far people had to go to reach one. When the nearest facility gets further away, fewer people can get abortions, usually because it's too expensive to travel. Myers mapped every abortion facility she could find going back more than a decade, and she keeps her map up to date. She says there have been dramatic changes in the past year since the Supreme Court's decision. The states that have experienced huge declines in access are Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Idaho also, I would say. A lot of driving if you're in Idaho. Of course, distance doesn't always limit access since now people have the option of getting abortion pills through the mail. But now that could be curtailed. There's a federal case out of Texas challenging mifepristone, one of the two drugs that's used for medication abortion. 
The case is expected to be argued at the Supreme Court in the fall. That decision could meaningfully limit access to medication abortion, which accounts for more than half of abortions nationally. I don't know what'll happen, but it could be bigger than Dobbs. And the map of abortion access in the country might change dramatically yet again. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, U.S. reading and math scores among 13-year-olds have dropped to the lowest level in decades. Some results also showed widening gaps based on gender and race. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com And BioNova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. The PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf announcing they will merge into one golf league. That major merger has roiled the sports world and the geopolitical one, too. Sports diplomacy isn't new. Countries use athletics to burnish their reputations all the time. But could the Saudi golf deal be better described as sports washing? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest episode of our podcast, The Common, is out today. The struggle to build more public housing. Cambridge is leading the charge in Massachusetts, but there's still a ways to go. Get a closer look at the issue wherever you get your podcasts. Clouds gradually clear away a bit for a mostly sunny day with a high near 70 today. Cloudy and a low around 60 tonight with a chance of showers before dawn tomorrow. Then Friday starts with patchy fog followed by mostly cloudy skies that may give way to showers while have a high near 75. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smartmouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior Stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Debbie Elliott. 
And I'm A. Martinez. British media company William Reed just released its annual World's 50 Best Restaurants list. The number one spot went to a restaurant in Lima, Peru called Central. William Drew is director of content for the world's 50 best restaurants. He says Central explores Peru's biodiversity and different ecosystems. The menu is structured around different altitudes of where the produce came from, whether it be below sea level in the Pacific, all the way to the mountains of the Andes and taking in the Amazon jungle. There are only two restaurants in the United States that made the top 50, both in New York City, the French restaurant La Bernardin at 44, and a Korean restaurant, Atomix. It's number eight. It's captured the imagination of the world with its extraordinarily individual take on the best Korean ingredients. Here's the thing, though. You won't find the kind of food most people eat every day represented on the list. The 50 best list tends to favor restaurants with long luxury tasting menus that highlight technical and high skill cooking. And a pretty distinct point of view from a chef really favors seasonality, a preference for local ingredients. That's Alan Sitzma, a food editor at New York Magazine. They're good meals, but you really have to be ready for a three or four hour fine dining procession of like tiny bites and lots of talk about the chef's vision and the kitchen's technique and whatever. So if that's what you're looking for, you'll probably have a great time if you can get a reservation. People come from all over the world to work in U.S. tech. And during the tech boom years, the industry relied heavily on foreign workers. But when the industry started laying off workers last year, many people who moved here for work are finding that linking their jobs to their residency is complicated. Amanda Aronchik from our Planet Money podcast followed a tech worker in the months following her layoff. In January of 2023, Ashka was working as a product engineer at Amazon, when along with 18,000 other people, she was laid off. Oh, yeah, it was pretty bad on that day. Like, I cried a lot because uh, not in my wildest dreams, I had imagined that I would be the one impacted. We're only using Ashka's first name so we don't jeopardize her ability to find work. At the time of the layoffs, Ashka was working with Americans who also got laid off, and they were going to take time off. But Ashka couldn't do that. She's originally from India and is here in the U.S. on an H-1B visa, a temporary work visa, which means she had to find a job within 60 days of being terminated or leave the country. Plus, she has commitments here in the U.S. She had promised her family that she'd pay her younger sister's tuition, 22000 a year. So right now I need to get a job as soon as possible so that I can pay her tuition fees in the next semester. So firstly, my focus is on landing a job right now. The competition to get an H-1B visa is tough. Once a year, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services opens up a visa lottery. It's for people with a specialized skill who are often working in science and tech. Companies sponsor applicants that they hope to employ long term. This year, there were more than 780,000 applications, but only 85,000 visas will be granted. Ashka could keep her visa as long as she could find a new company to sponsor her. So once she got over getting laid off, she got into an intense routine. In the morning, I woke up at four, done, tick. I did my meditation, tick. I did my gymming, tick. So that makes me feel more accomplished throughout the day. 
That structure helped her focus so she could start applying for jobs. We first spoke in February, and at that time, she was still quite sure that she could find one. She was feeling some real main character energy. I have been joking that right now I'm the audience to my own story, and I'm waiting like what will happen next in Ashka's life. <laughs> so, How do you feel like Ashka, the character in the movie, is doing? Is she doing okay? <laughs> she is a ninja right now. <laughs> like she, uh, Now when I think about myself, I think I'm stronger than I thought that I was. Over the next few months, she submitted a ton of resumes and got interviews with about 35 companies. Usually, she would wait until the very end of these interviews to say, look, I'm on this H-1B visa. And a lot of times, that seemed to change the conversation. She wasn't getting any good job offers. Then, with just 20 days left before her visa was going to expire, I spoke with Ashka again. This time, she was no longer a job-applying ninja. In fact, her financial situation was so precarious, she needed to move. So I am moving to Texas, to a friend's place, where I can live for some time without paying my rent. Did you pack up your place in Seattle? Yeah, so uh, yeah, my room is filled with boxes and bags right now. Hopefully Texas brings me some good news. A couple weeks later, with just three days left before her visa expired, we spoke again. I got a job uh, at a pharmacy. Ashka got a job working for a pharmacy, helping implement some AI and building tools so customers can order medications online. And her title sounds pretty good. She's VP of product. But she did not seem very relieved. It is a good news, but it's not paying me that well. So I'm still looking out for a better option. I still can't move into my own rented apartment yet based on that. So, yeah. I see. Even with a 50% reduction in pay, Ashka took the job because the company agreed to sponsor her visa. This keeps her life in the U.S. intact for now, but she says it's financially unsustainable. The H-1B visa program is supposed to help the economy by bringing in skilled workers. But right now, as the tech industry shrinks and there are layoffs, some of the rules are proving hard on the workers, people with commitments to pay their rent and help support their younger sisters. Amanda Aronchik, NPR News. One note, Amazon supports and pays to distribute some of our content. Google is also a financial supporter of NPR. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. The Boston Art and Music Soul Festival is back and bigger than ever. We have a preview of the celebration of black culture. It's 829. R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines the next Sound On Music Festival tomorrow at City Space. Details and tickets are at wbur.org events. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And direct tire and auto service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden holds a state dinner at the White House tonight for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, demonstrating the importance of good relations between the U.S. and the world's largest democracy. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the U.S. and India have many common interests, such as national security, but some differences remain concerning political, religious, and press freedoms. This visit exposes the tension inherent in Biden's foreign policy vision between values and geopolitical priorities. Uh, Biden came into office talking about how his foreign policy was going to center human rights and democracy, and India frankly makes that conversation tricky. Thousands of employees at Spirit Aerosystems in Kansas have voted to go on strike this weekend. The company makes airplane parts for companies such as Boeing and Airbus. Daniel Caudill of member station KMUW has more. Spirit workers voted to strike after rejecting the company's final contract offer. The strike will begin Saturday after the current contract expires. Under the proposed four-year contract, workers would have seen an average wage increase of 4% each year, along with annual bonuses and cost-of-living adjustments. The Machinist Union and Spirit began negotiating on behalf of nearly 8,000 workers in May. The union endorsed the company's final offer. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is laying out her investment plan for the state. Her new capital investment plan would invest more than $14 billion over the next five years. Part of the plan includes giving over $1 billion to the state's transportation systems. Some of the funds will also go to affordable housing initiatives and efforts aimed at reaching the state's climate goals. The proposal needs to be approved by legislators before it can go into effect. We're getting a better explanation of why faculty at the Boston Latin Academy gave a vote of no confidence to the head of the school. A letter obtained by the Boston Globe shows teachers were upset over incomplete schedules they say led to a loss of learning time. They were also upset over a lack of protocols to deal with behavior and safety issues. The head of the school says he plans on staying in his job but wants to work with teachers to address the issues. Thousands of dead fish are currently floating in Salem Harbor. A net on a fishing boat tore open and dumped the fish into the harbor. Harbor officials stress the fish were not killed by any kind of water quality issues. They say there are no public health risks at this time. On this first full day of summer, the Old Farmer's Almanac is out with its summer weather predictions for New England. Sarah Peralt is the senior editor of the publication. She says the Almanac has a mixed prediction for summer weather this year. It looks like it's going to be a warm and wet summer 
for most of the region. And this kind of sounds like normal New England, but we're going to expect some of the hottest periods of the summer to occur in mid-July and then again in early to mid-August. The Old Farmer's Almanac started making weather predictions more than 230 years ago. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The Red Sox lost to the Twins 5-4 to in 10 innings last night in Minneapolis that snapped their six-game winning streak. The Sox and Twins will wrap up their series this afternoon. Mostly sunny today with a high around 70. Tonight it drops to around 60 and grows cloudy. There may be showers before sunrise tomorrow, then a mostly cloudy Friday near 80 with a chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Debbie Elliott in Orange Beach, Alabama. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Palestinian Americans are the latest victims of the ongoing violence in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. A village where many Palestinian Americans live is now the scene of torched homes and cars. Hundreds of Israeli settlers rampaged through the village. One Palestinian married to a U.S. citizen was killed by Israeli police during the confrontation. The settlers were avenging the deaths of Israelis killed by Palestinians the day before in a nearby settlement. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in the West Bank village where all of this happened. Daniel, what have you seen? Well, I drove into the village of Turmus Aya and I drove past palm trees that line the road on both sides and, you know, you see big mansions here. It feels a lot like Los Angeles and the reason is that the vast majority of the villagers here are Palestinian American. I met a family on summer vacation from, from Georgia. The grandson was at his grandma's house. He was playing on his iPad and hundreds of settlers marched past the home yesterday. One of them beat the grandmother with a rod and then they torched the home and I'm next to the home right now and it just, it reeks. Um, I also met a woman from Chicago whose husband was killed by an Israeli policeman here yesterday. Uh, The policeman said he felt he was being shot at, so he opened fire, and the wife disputes that. But the villagers here say no one is protecting them. The Israeli police have not announced a single arrest, and an Israeli military official told me, clearly we failed. Troops arrived way too late here to the village. But, you know, it was no secret that settlers sought revenge for uh, the Palestinian shooting the day before. I drove all along the road here, uh, saw posters in Hebrew that say, Revenge. We mentioned that it's Palestinian Americans that were affected. So is the United States doing anything about this? Well, the U.S. says it's appalled at the settler attacks in this and other villages. It's called for Israel to protect U.S. civilians here. But you know what? U.S. diplomacy is really failing. Um, recently, the U.S. got the US, uh, got Israel to agree to a freeze in settlement building here. But Israel has just announced a big expansion of Israeli settlements. Um, 
what you do see is a new phenomenon in the U.S., more Palestinian Americans elected to office. And I met one of them visiting his village here, um, his home village. It's Illinois state legislator Abdel Nasser Rashid. Here's what he told me. On the one hand, there is such joy in being here. And on the other, there is a brutal, violent, racist military occupation. The government in the United States is what is enabling this through our completely unaccountable support for Israel. That's a message he brought in a meeting today with a senior State Department official. Daniel, where's all this headed now? A, it just feels that things are really getting out of hand very quickly. Um, it started earlier this week with a deadly Israeli raid in Jenin. Israeli soldiers were wounded and they used attack helicopters for the first time in decades. Then there was the Palestinian shooting, uh, killing four Israelis, then the settler revenge attacks. Israel carried out its first drone strike on Palestinian militants, uh, the first of that kind in about 20 years. So clearly there is an escalation here. NPR's Daniel Estrin reporting from the West Bank. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. report card is in now for how America's 13-year-olds are doing in math and reading, and it's not good. Scores have slipped to their lowest level in decades. To learn why, we turn now to Peggy Carr. She's the commissioner of the National Center for Education Statistics, which administers the tests. Good morning. Good morning. So first, give us the results. These are tests that were given last fall. What are they showing? Well, um, the big story is that these additional data show how badly the pandemic has disrupted the learning of students. These were teenagers, 13-year-olds. 13 means that they were about 10 or 11 when the COVID hit three years ago. And so these data here today show that the reading and math scores have declined, and especially the math scores are widespread declines showing students are really scoring very similar to uh, what we picked up in the 1970s. My goodness, so the math scores were worse, and I understand they also reveal some widening race and gender, ca gender gaps. What does that tell us? Well, I, I think the uh, most important finding regarding the, the subgroups is that the lower performing students, students who were already struggling even before the pandemic hit, their declines are dropping uh, faster than their counterparts, their higher performing students. And so uh, the gap between them certainly is widening in a way that uh, is so worrisome. You know, part of the problem is that even before the pandemic, as much as a decade ago, we were already seeing declines for these students, especially for the lower performing ones. And the pandemic, well, it just accelerated these declines that we're seeing today. Well, you know, NPR has been reporting about the decline in education um, outcomes during the pandemic, but we've had a couple of years now where most students have been back in the classroom, yet the slippage is still continuing. Is there any explanation for why that is still happening even though kids are back in their seats? Let me say that this test that we released yesterday was basic skills. So there was this uh, expectation that perhaps we would see some movement back to the 
performance level that uh, we picked up in night uh, in the fall of 2019, but nothing is really historic. The declines are just as stark as they were before. So what we're picking up now is that there are a lot of other factors that are impacting the well-being of students. Mental health. We are seeing chronic absenteeism. We're seeing a bullying uh, uh, increase. And then, of course, we all know about crime and safety in schools. So the big picture is that we need to think about the whole child, not just the academics, which are important, but we really need to focus on all the well-being, factors affecting the well-being of the student. Thank you. Peggy Carr is the commissioner of the National Center for Educational Statistics, which is a branch of the U.S. Department of Education. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Paris this week for a global summit on debt. With U.S. debt running to $32 trillion, we'll ask her what does she hope to take away. Listen wherever you are, on your computer, your phone, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report previews a report out later this morning for sales of existing homes and looks at how real estate agents are finding workarounds in the tight housing market. Mostly sunny today, near 70. Temperatures fall to around 60 tonight, and it grows cloudy overnight with showers possible. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 80 with a chance of showers mainly in the afternoon. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. Union workers at Encore Boston Harbor could go on strike as soon as the end of next week. The Unite Here Local 26 and Teamsters Local 25 unions say yesterday's vote was overwhelmingly in favor of authorizing a strike amid ongoing contract negotiations. 1,400 employees will go on strike July 1st if a deal is not reached. The casino has said it wants to keep negotiations going. Cambridge-based Surface Oncology is being acquired by a California company. The all-stock deal with Coherus Biosciences is worth up to $65 million. Late last year, Surface laid off about 20 percent of its workforce after it discontinued one of its cancer treatments. Visitors at Coolidge Corner Theater can soon sip on a new signature beer while watching a movie. The Brookline Theater is releasing its cult classic Pilsner starting today. The beer is made by Vermont-based Zero Gravity Brewery. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Art and Music Soul Festival is back for its fifth year at Franklin Park. It's grown in size and has expanded from one day to three. WBUR's Ariel Gray has a preview of the event, which seeks to center black culture. That's the sound of the saxophone, played by Tim Hall, a Boston musician and assistant professor at Berklee College of Music. He's playing a solo gig at the Omni Hotel in the Seaport. Though he often plays as a backing musician, he's now preparing to take center stage in front of thousands at the upcoming Boston Art and Music Soul Festival. It's very emotional to also now find myself being one of the artists uh, in terms of not a, not a side man, not like a, a session musician for somebody else, but to do my own music um, at the festival. It's been a, like emotional experience. It's been really, really cool. Hall is one of 17 music performers at this year's BAMS Fest. He worked with the organization for six years and feels it's an important platform for local musicians like him. It's wild to really be able to like, what do they call that? To be able to reap what you sow. Like the, the individuals who have been at the beginning of BAMS Fest are able to reap the benefits of the labor that have been put in over the years. In the past, the festival has been a one-day, free experience at Franklin Park, complete with two music stages, vendors, art-making, and more. But this year, that changes. What's been remarkable is the decision to scale, going from a one-day to basically three days with an inaugural conference centering uh, Black imagination, Black entrepreneurship, connection, unity, collaboration. Across That's BAMS Fest founder Catherine Morris on Zoom. The first festival happened in 2018 and had around 2,000 people. This year, BAMS Fest is expecting 15,000 attendees and performances by jazz drummer Terry Lynn Carrington and legendary DJ and producer Grandmaster Flash and others. The festival also has much more in store outside of music. We have Rep Your City live art and graffiti exhibition. We have chefs. We have home cooks. We got caterers. We got food trucks. We have a dedicated kids zone, which is called Kids Play. Uh, we have a vendor market. And then we added a job fair this year. It's a massive expansion, which is why the organization has introduced a new tiered ticketing model. Patrons can purchase passes that give them access to different parts of BAMS Fest. For those who can't purchase passes, free tickets are available for Saturday's music festival. There will always be a portion of this that will remain free to the public, period, right? Because we want to make sure people um, discover each other, discover themselves, discover who's in their community. You know, that's always our commitment. The decision to scale was an important one for the organization. Having an arts and music festival centering Black culture in a city like Boston makes a statement, says Morris. Doing a, a multidisciplinary, intergenerational festival that feeds people, gives them nourishment, it starts to change the attitude about what's possible and hopefully inspires the next generation that they can go bigger than Vance Festival, as they should. 
Through BAM's Fest, Morris hopes to transform Boston into a creative hub where black and brown artists can see themselves and want to stay. Artists like Tim Hall. Because of BAM's Fest, we've seen artists elevate over time because of the platforms that are provided to them um, and because of the care that I think is, is ingrained in the programming with BAM's Fest. Paul looks forward to sharing his music and making connections with new audiences at the festival. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. The Boston Art and Music Soul Festival kicks off today and runs through Saturday. You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a report from a big climate change summit in Paris, plus the international view of tonight's White House state dinner for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. And UMass Chan Medical School ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Rescuers are still searching for a missing submersible carrying five people. As experts say, oxygen on board could soon run out. A Moscow court has ruled that Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich must stay in a Russian prison on espionage charges until at least late August. And the National Transportation Safety Board will meet today to examine the cause of the Ohio train derailment. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include CertaPro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Certa with a C. Partly sunny and near 70 today, 50s tonight. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. The party of free markets reconsiders. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The Republican Party has long been associated with free market capitalism, the idea that letting the market work its magic can solve a lot of problems efficiently. Well, Republican views on that appear to be changing. A group from the more populist wing of the party unveiled a kind of economic manifesto yesterday on Capitol Hill. It marks a departure from the party's traditional economic thinking. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer was there. The manifesto calls for eliminating the trade deficit and encouraging manufacturing in the U.S. Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio told the audience the GOP should be more skeptical of the free market, especially when corporations do things like move their factories to China. Because the market says it is more efficient to make medicine in China, basically make anything in China. 
but it's not in our national interest. So, and, and it's certainly not in our national interest to create these pockets of despair as well in America. This group of Republicans also supports guarantees for workers to organize and join unions, although they would also bar unions' political spending. Senator Todd Young, an Indiana Republican, wants to ban non-compete clauses that block a company's employees from going to work for a competitor or starting their own businesses. You trap employees in that relationship and don't give them the freedom to leave and apply their skills where they can be applied, where there is the most economic value added. The manifesto also pushes for a monthly benefit of up to $350 per child for working families, and it backs a financial transaction tax that would target what it calls unproductive and speculative transactions by investors. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. We talk a lot about job openings, the tightness of the labor market, economic statistics that paint a picture of our economy. But that sometimes hides the fact that the U.S. is made up of multiple economies. The Labor Department has released some state-by-state data about job openings and labor turnover in April. And yes, the labor market is tight everywhere, but there are some parts of the country where employers are having an especially hard time finding workers. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. The labor market is tightest in the South, along with the Midwest and in New England. They have very high job openings compared to the number of unemployed persons. That's Megan Schoenberger, senior economist at KPMG. A big reason the labor market is so tight in the South, she says, is that a lot of people have been moving there. But many of those people are starting up businesses, which creates demand for even more workers. That's sort of robustified economies in geographic regions, and now they need a lot more labor, and it's just not there yet. Meanwhile, the labor market is tight in the Midwest and the Northeast because unemployment rates there are falling. Charlie Doherty, senior economist at Wells Fargo, says that's not necessarily because more people are finding jobs in those areas. Instead, it's because people are leaving. Because folks are increasingly moving away in search of better job opportunity. And Doherty says they're finding that in states like Florida, South Carolina, and Georgia. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Okay, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down nine-tenths of a percent. S&P, Dow, and NASDAQ futures also down around two-tenths of a percent, with the Dow future down 71 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by JLL, striving to be a commercial real estate partner that can create lasting change for good in business, communities, and the planet. JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. The past few months, sales of existing homes have been low. Inventory has been limited. Interest rates are high. How the housing market is pretty tight. Later this morning, we will see if that has changed at all when the latest numbers come out. But for now, sellers and buyers sometimes have to compromise and get creative. Ali Budner has more. Lisa Sturdivan is chief economist with Bright MLS. She's seeing more and more buyers compromise on their dream home, like going in on a purchase with family. So going in and buying a home with mom and dad so that multiple generations can live together and can pool their resources to afford the mortgage. 
Or some home buyers are opting to remain renters in their current place, but buy properties so they can be landlords. That's more the case when buyers realize they can't even remotely afford the home they want, so they buy a cheaper investment property to build equity. They can then convert that into a purchase of a home that they ultimately will live in that can check more of those boxes. And then there are those buyers who don't need to worry about interest rates. Daryl Fairweather is chief economist at Redfin. We're also seeing a record share of homes being bought with all cash. On the seller side of things, Fairweather says many homeowners just aren't selling. If they need to move, they end up renting out the homes. They can collect the rent and pay off their very low interest rate mortgage and still keep it. But some homeowners need to sell. And if they have a low interest mortgage rate locked in, offering to sell that loan along with the house can be a major perk. It's called an assumable mortgage. Craig O'Boyle is a realtor in Colorado Springs and co-owner of Assumption Solutions, which helps with this kind of loan transfer. You buy a home and you take over the existing mortgage that's in place on the property. But there's a caveat. It's mostly only VA or FHA loans that qualify. Nicole Wilkinson is a realtor in Boise, Idaho. One of her clients has an older mortgage from the VA at a pretty low interest rate. My seller thought that this would be a good opportunity to allow a new buyer to come in and be able to assume their um, interest rate. And in fact, the first line on the listing's flyer touts the property's 2.75% VA assumable loan, before mentioning the hardwood floors and stainless steel appliances. And Wilkinson says they've had tons of interest, and that rate will likely lead to a higher sale price. But there are drawbacks. It's a lengthy process, which can be quite clunky. But she says that's one hurdle some buyers and sellers are willing to deal with in this squeezed market. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. WBUR supporters include BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu slash met. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.